Hey, it's Nathan, and this is day 87 of the Bible in 90 Days. Today's big book is Hebrews. Both the authorship and audience are unspecified, so I'll simply let the book speak for itself. Hebrews 1 begins, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Then the author makes his case for Jesus being the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, thus not only being superior to angels, but God in the flesh, citing multiple Hebrew prophets to back up these claims. One such reference is this. In speaking of angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews chapter 2. By the way, you have got to read this chapter. In it, the author argues that we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Then the author turns to the divine human nature of Christ, asserting that we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, and that both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Hebrews 3 finds the author adding to his already powerful argument that Jesus, our apostle and high priest, is also worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. While Moses was a faithful servant, Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. Then the apostle warns, after reflecting briefly on ancient Israel's stubbornness, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews 4, another chapter well worth reading, begins with this promise. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. The author then urges his readers to have faith in God's offer of rest, in contrast to the unbelieving masses of the Hebrew Exodus so long before. As part of this argument, he reminds the people of Joshua, who had led the Israelites into the promised land, and then declares, There remains then a Sabbath of rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, 
so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The author then reflects briefly on the power of God's word as alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, before illuminating the priestly ministry of Jesus, the Son of God, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Hebrews 5 then turns to argue how Jesus is both uniquely qualified and superior as high priest. The author begins by noting, first, that human high priests are able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness, and that they receive this honor from God rather than being self-appointed. Similarly, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Not only that, but during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. The chapter concludes with the author chastising his readers because... Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Hebrews 6 then urges the readers to move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. After this, he warns of the grave danger of resisting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is impossible For those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. The author then notes, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. He reminds his readers that God will not forget your work and the love you have shown him, also encouraging them to be diligent. The remainder of the chapter finds the author assuring his readers of the certainty of God's promise. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Hebrews 7 addresses a critical piece of the Jesus as high priest narrative because Jesus' genetic lineage is through Judah, not Levi. The author navigates this challenge by appealing to a historical moment when Abraham paid tithes to a non-Levitical priest named Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. The author then presses his argument for Jesus' priestly superiority. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. 
and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. And because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Hebrews 8, by the way, another chapter well worth reading, starts off with a summary statement. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. The author then argues for the superiority of the heavenly sanctuary as the superior reality of which the earthly tabernacle, which Moses had erected, was but a copy In addition, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. The author then highlights this new covenant by quoting from Jeremiah, beginning with these words, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Hebrews 9 finds the author reviewing the layout of the early tabernacle, including its furniture and priestly ministry, then observing. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. A line later, we come to this critical transition. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. The ministry of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, can cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The remainder of the chapter builds on this, noting first the centrality of blood to the Mosaic tabernacle and then arguing. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Hebrews 10, another chapter well worth reading, opens... The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Essentially, half the chapter is devoted to arguing the superiority and efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus, who offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The last half of the chapter shifts focus, with the author turning to the implications of Jesus' ministry. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. Then, a few lines down, this encouragement. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. He also urges the church to encourage one another and then warns of serious consequences if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Finally, he reminds the believers of the suffering they have endured and encourages them to keep persevering because their confidence would be richly rewarded. Hebrews 11, another chapter well worth reading, and I can't tell you how much this chapter is worth reading because it's full of incredible stories. In fact, it's an inspiring collection of faith heroes shared by the author to strengthen the faith of the believers. The chapter begins, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Then the author starts right in, recounting story after story of faith, beginning with the creation, and then relating numerous examples of faith in action. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Isaac, and Samson, among many others. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Chapter 11 spills over into chapter 12, leveraging the inspiring power of the stories just recounted. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. After this, the author begins to wrap things up with counsel such as, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And this, after reminding them of sober events at the ancient Mount Sinai, But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Hebrews 13 continues the author's wrap-up, including a range of counsel such as, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Continue to remember those in prison. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. Remember your leaders. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Before concluding the book, the author requests, pray for us. He then offers a beautiful benediction before wrapping up, grace be with you all. 
And now we're into James, whose book is introduced quite simply, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. James 1 begins by addressing trial and temptation. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. James also invites his readers, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. In the midst of talking about trial, James encourages Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. He then comes back around to perseverance under trial, noting those who prevail receive the crown of life. The next bit of counsel addresses the subject of temptation, with James declaring in part, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. In contrast, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. James then urges believers on two points. First, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James then takes it a step further. Don't just listen to the word, do what it says. On a related note, James warns, those who do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. True religion, in contrast, is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 2 begins by addressing favoritism. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. James then gives an example of what he means and calls the church out for discriminating against the poor. After all, aren't the rich the ones exploiting you? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. Following this, he argues that one cannot be selective about which commandments to obey. James then reinforces his point, challenging the church that, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. He argues to the end of the chapter that one's religious claims must be evidenced by corresponding actions because... As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James 3 calls the church to account for their tongues, that is, how they used their words. In this section, he notes, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. The chapter ends with James contrasting earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Those with earthly wisdom harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, 
while the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And that's all for today.